you're turning out to be the next David Frost, are you? Is it? <laughs> well, so so uh, so Marvin Lieberman was calling me the Johnny Carson of the strategy field uh, in the email. No, oh, I hope you make it. I think these these young folks probably have never heard of Johnny Carson, and they certainly have never heard of David Frost. No, uh, no. I, I was joking with somebody earlier today that I, you know I used to be an American, but now I'm a citizen of the Republic of Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> kind of where I live my life. Yeah. Well, Zoom is a uh, Zoom turned out to be a godsend for all this yeah. viruses as we went through. That's for sure. We need a. I think the Republic of Zoom needs a, a flag and a, a national anthem. <laughs> uh, you have to realize that I'm a total amateur on Zoom. I I retired ten years ago. And in back in the day, you know, we used to have the students in a in a classroom, yeah, talking to them. I didn't uh, I didn't use Zoom either until this pandemic. You could you could you could you could give them what for right to their face, you know. <laughs> oh, hi, Tom. So you how are you, them, Thomas? You, you could give them what for, Dan, and you did, right? <laughs> Well, I, I, I don't think I won any popularity contest. <laughs> no, I, uh, well, we used to have some tough, tough instructors around. And uh, you, you had to hold your own. <laughs> no. who, who do you think was the toughest? Was it Llewellyn or? No, I was thinking of Charlie King, who used to be in marketing where I started my career at Purdue and uh, he was pretty tough cookie. He, he used to talk about the chickens and the hawks. And he said he wanted to know what you were, a chicken or a hawk. <laughs> Probably more of a vulture. And he said, you, you know what hawks do? He said, I'm a hawk. <laughs> and indeed he was. So it is my my great pleasure to uh, welcome the founder uh, to the talk show, uh, Dan Schendel. Um, Dan, as you can see on the slide here, Dan uh, is the uh, Blake Family Endowed Chair Emeritus at Purdue University, here in his doctorate at Stanford University. Uh, and I say the founder for a number of reasons. You know, he was the founder and the founding president of the Strategic Management Society. He was the founder and the founding editor of Strategic Management Journal. He was the founder of the very first independent PhD program in strategy anywhere on earth, which was right here at Purdue. Uh, and in terms of uh, strategy as a field of research, I like to tell people, you know, uh, as a field of teaching, strategy began at Harvard in uh, whatever it was, 1913, 1918, whenever they started the business policy course. But as a field of research, it really began right here at Purdue in the 1970s, 
uh, when um, Dan was involved with uh, creating some of the very first uh, rigorous scientific large sample empirical quantitative uh, studies of strategy. Uh, he co-authored several of those, uh, a series of papers that's become known as the Brewery Studies, uh, including the, the Hatton and Schendel 1977 Journal of Industrial Economics paper and the Hatton, Schendel and Cooper 1978 uh, AMJ article. Um, so, uh, you know, I think if anybody can claim to be the founder of the strategy field, at least as a field of research, I think it would be Dan. Uh, he also has served uh, not only as a fellow of the Strategic Management Society, but as the former dean of the SMS Fellows. He is also a fellow of the Academy of Management. So please join me in welcoming the founder, Dan Schendel. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so were you going to ask me questions or you just want me to talk? <laughs> I, could, I could just press play, huh? And, uh, and you could probably go for about an hour, huh? Uh, well, I, you know, the first question I usually start with in these interviews is just about, you know, how did you get into the academic game in the first place? I, I you know, I, one thing I like to say in these interviews is I, I, I never knew a 10-year-old who said, Mommy, I want to be a strategy professor when I grow up. And I'm sure that wasn't the case for you because strategy, strategy professor wasn't a thing back then because strategy wasn't a thing. Um, but, but tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, how it was that you found your way into the academic game in the first place. Okay. Um, let, me, let, me, let me start with the choice of what do you do when you get out of high school? And uh, my father was an entrepreneur all, through, all his life, eighth grade education, and he started a number of businesses and he dearly wanted me to stay with him. And I said, no, I, I lived in a little town that had no future. I didn't think his business had any future, but for me anyway. And uh, he'd made a good life for he and his family. Uh, but I always admired him because he knew how to see opportunity and uh, he knew how to, to put enough capital together to make business. And, uh, but I, I didn't think it was for me. Uh, as I studied uh, things strategic, I finally knew why I, I, I drew the conclusions I did. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, cho I chose to go to, to engineering school. Mm -hmm. And I, that's a long story, but I did. And I majored in major uh, metallurgical engineering. And that was a kind of strategic choice in itself. But uh, uh, I was plagued by the Korean War and draft. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and at the University of Wisconsin in the 50s, uh, they had an ROTC program, which I, I was obligated to take for, for freshman and, and sophomore years. And I stayed on junior and senior years. And that was uh, critical because I, I, uh, I graduated and ended up with a direct duty assignment uh, into the United States Air Force. 
uh, a research facility at, at Wright Field at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And, uh, and that was, and I got assigned to the team that was bringing titanium into the fore and into airplanes where it had some unique reasons to be used in an airplane. Right. And the, the, nobody else, the commercial world was not interested because it was a very difficult metal to work with. And in any event, I joined that team and I had a three year tour and which allowed me to write a lot of requests for re proposals, uh, a lot of work with, with uh, evaluating the proposals and then monitoring the work, which led to a lot of trips to uh, commercial R&D facilities, universities, research institutes, and so on. And I learned a great deal from that. And uh, I learned how good it, it, um, engineers are at solving pro uh, problems nobody's got. <laughs> and and uh, every place I'd go, you'd, you'd run across an engineer and say, hey, I want to show you something. And he'd take me off to some corner showing me his latest, greatest idea. Most of them didn't make much sense to me, except technically they might. Mm -hmm. Yes, you could do that, but why would you do it? And I, I, I got very interested in the whole subject of research done for what reason? You know, you, you, the Air Force had a reason, uh, but uh, uh, a lot of the companies didn't. Anyway, that was a very educational experience for me uh, that followed my, my ba uh, bachelor's degree at Madison. And uh, I actually started work with Alcoa, worked for just six months and then I was brought into the Air Force and uh, where I stayed. But the, uh, the essential part of my, <laughs> my Air Force career was not that I learned to fly airplanes. Mm -hmm. But it was that I I uh, got an MBA degree part time from Ohio State, mm -hmm. where I met a man by the name of Frank Bass, who was a marketing professor there, <coughs> and uh, legend in marketing. If you know anything about marketing, you know he is a real stalwart, <laughs> mm -hmm. a really fine scholar and a, quite a leader. And uh, anyway, along the way, uh, my advisor said, you, 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 you expressed interest in becoming a consultant. That's your career. That's what you want to do. And uh, uh, I said, yes, that's what I want to do. And, uh, and uh, anyway, uh, he said, well, I got, I got an alternative for you. And he talked about the, the um, revolution going on in business education uh, and particularly the, what is, was known as the Gordon and Howell report mm -hmm. that was sponsored by the Ford Foundation that really was critical of business schools right. and led to quite a reformation of business schools. But it also 
to back themselves up, they, they felt they needed to train better faculty than, they, than was uh, available. And so they had a scholarship program, which I happened to win one of those. Mm -hmm. And it was fairly lucrative. And you could take anywhere you could get admitted. And so I, I, I began considering that, saying, well, what would, a, what would a PhD do to somebody holding an MBA and a BS uh, if I wanted to take up consulting with one of the consulting firms or wherever? And uh, so, so I applied and won it. And uh, I ended up choosing Stanford, partly because of Frank's uh, Frank Bass's advice. He became a mentor to me. And in the meantime, wouldn't you know, he moved to Purdue. Mm -hmm. was just rebuilding its school in, in the early um, 60s, in the late 50s. And uh, so when I got out of the Air Force in uh, 1959, you, you, you note that, that date, 1959 or 1950s, really, that's like 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. The youngsters that are looking at me, you're looking at a man that's 87 years old. And so it'd take me a long time to talk about 87 years. <laughs> but, but what I did, I, I went to Stanford and uh, majored in marketing. And while there, uh, of course, I ended up having to do a PhD or a doctoral thesis. And uh, that was kind of instrumental what I chose. But um, anyway, I had a good time there and a, and a good education. But I, I kind of lost my way insofar as marketing was concerned. Mm. I so I got quite interested in why, what was happening, all this technology stuff that was being talked about, which of course was right there, part of Silicon Valley. Right, right there, right around Stanford. Right there, and I, I chose for my talk uh, topic of thesis was development of highly technical new products. And because what, what I really came away from the Air Force after seeing all of the labs that I did, I got to wondering about what the hell are these people going to do with this, all these projects? What, what, where does it fit in their business, what they're doing? And, I, and of course, I was studying marketing, so I was interested in commercialization of whatever they were doing. Could you make any money with it? Could 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 you add to the business? And uh, and I I what I learned from my Air Force experience with all these visits and looking around at what was going on, I I learned that there was not a like uh, set of activities going on in the companies to take advantage of what what uh, they were putting together in their research for portfolios. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that kind of interested me because I said, you know, uh, 
and, and you have to think about what I was looking at in terms of, of, of businesses in those days. Most businesses were single business operations. Right. They were not the multiple business operations. You see the conglomerates that we talk about and all that was coming into the fore strongly. Uh, Dick Rommel wrote a nice book about that in, uh, in 19, uh, whatever it was, 74, I think. Right. And uh, about what was happening. And, and of course, Dave, and, uh, Chandler was doing his work right. uh, on st structure follows strategy, and uh, which was kind of influential, influential to me. If I can backtrack a minute to my, my education at Stanford, I ended up taking a, a, uh, a seminar from a political science uh, head uh, who was a graduate of the University of Chicago and a colleague of Herb Simon. Mm. Anyway, he picked, he picked three books that we were going to study. One of them was Chester Barnard. Mm -hmm. Another was, uh, I, I, I Remember, I said I was 87, and believe me, you forget a lot of things by the time you get to that age. Uh, but there was a 1959 book uh, that a sociologist had written that was kind of instrumental in uh, the same subjects that Barnard talked about. Mm -hmm. By the way, if you don't know if you've never read Barnard, which is a, a kind of an obtuse book to read, uh, I'm talking to you young doctoral students, you better get yourself a copy. You ought to read it. But the uh, other group, uh, other, I apologize for, for not having on the tip of my mind the 1959 book. And then of course, one by, by Weber mm -hmm. and uh, the Barnard book was rather interesting to me. Once once we got to discussing it in in the seminar, because uh, it was a good cross section of people from the university were in it, and we were exploring a lot of interesting ideas about Chester Barnard was the head of a major telephone company. I think that's true, and uh, and uh, a lot of great ideas there. Uh, I always said that Herb Simon, who wrote a book, uh, is kind of famous man, uh, Nobel Prize winner is now gone, but but uh, he wrote a book called Administrative Behavior, which was published in about, oh, I think 1945, maybe, maybe it was 55, I'm not sure. It was, it was 1945, is right. Well, yeah, I, I got my guy who really knows. <laughs> Yeah, is, is the other book you were thinking of Philip Selznick, uh, the sociologist? Yeah, I knew it was Philip something. Was, yeah, yeah that, that's a good book. Yes, I agree. It's good to have somebody on the line who's read everything. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I, I kind of forgot about that. And uh, Paul, Paul uh, Joe is a, is, is, a, is a kind of a walking bibliography. Yes, an encyclopedic knowledge of the literature. Joe's memorized that. all these books, I think. Now, I wish I had his memory. Uh, uh, but 
anyway, that was very influential and got me to thinking about a lot of things. And, um, and particularly technology was, it was mm. always on my mind. Um, well, partly because I was an engineer uh, and I've, I've always been interested in solving problems. You know, how does something work? How does it need to work if you're going to use physical sciences to solve a problem? Um, and uh, those, those were influential books to me. And then when I hit the 60s, uh, I, I learned a lot about uh, operations research that was going on, that was used in the war, uh, long range planning, which was all forerunners to what we call strategic management. And, uh, and then in the 60s, there were some books published, uh, Igor Ansoff's Corporate Strategy, uh, Learned and others who did the classic policy textbook that was published in uh, the early 60s. We right. used it at Purdue. And, uh, and I, I got to know uh, Bruce Henderson of the Boston Consulting Group. And, uh, and I got to know eventually Igor Ansoff, who plays quite a role in what I did. Um, his book, Corporate Strategy, was interesting. Um, but he was a little ahead of his time in, in some sense, but it, all those things were impactful to me uh, because it all got coalesced for me by uh, a man by the name of Robert Katz who had failed tenure at, tenure, at Harvard and moved to uh, become the president of the Yosemite and Curry Club, which was they, they worked with the, the famous park. He was the president of that organization. And he was teaching a course at Stanford and he wanted to, he captured a bunch of us doctoral students to work as assistants with him. And he had writ, just written a book called Managing the Total Enterprise, which as you might guess, has to do with the total enterprise, everything, top management, that sort of thing. I learned an awful lot from him, and uh, he learned enough about me to recommend me to go teach policy at uh, at uh, a case. Uh, what am I trying to think? Case Western, where mm -hmm. where Jim March was and Herb Simon and that classic bunch of folks, and um, he thought I he thought I was interested enough in that subject. Um, that, was just, that was just stuff that influenced me that I remember. Right. And anyway, uh, back to my thesis, I wrote a book, or I wrote a, it was a, wasn't a book, it was long enough to be one, uh, on managing the highly technical uh, new product process. And I did a case, set of case studies uh, with eight different companies. Uh, one was Ampex, which was the inventor of the videotape. Mm -hmm. Went, uh, went, went, went uh, bankrupt uh, with 
Fairchild Semiconductor, which mm -hmm. spawned Intel. And numerous others. And numerous others. Uh, Kaiser Aluminum, mm -hmm. which is big in the area. Food Machinery Corporation, which was located in San Jose. Hewlett Packard, got to know both Mr. Packard and Mr. Hewlett through this. It was a relatively small business at the time. Uh, in fact, their, their sales, as I recall, were 180 million a year. <laughs> Think about that. Varian mm -hmm. Associates, still, still operating. And uh, a couple of others, something called McCulloch, uh, which was involved in electronics, which no longer exists, or probably was bought up. You can't find it anywhere. But I studied them very closely for their research activity vis-a-vis -vis their product development activity. And that really takes you into the realm of uh, how does the company plan to make money? Mm -hmm. What kind of value is it creating for its customer base. And is the customer base large enough to support the companies undertaking capital needs and so on? And uh, that's what I, the way we started to think about it. I did anyway. And I saw a lot of problems that, uh, that you, if you were gonna manage all of that technology, what you had to do. And that got me to thinking about that basic recipe that you're going to put together that I call strategy. Now, one of the things I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, because you probably, you, I'm sure you know HP having studied them, you know, better than, than most people. But I've, I've, I've been led to believe that one of their advantages in technology commercialization, which is the topic that you studied, one of their advantages in technology commercialization was that uh, this was a company run by engineers producing products for engineers. So the market that they were addressing was basically quite similar to the people who were doing the product development in the first place. Well, uh, there, there was a, there was a uh, Dave Packard was the, shall we say the administrative brains. Mm -hmm. Bill Hewlett was the technical brains. And it was his garage <laughs> that they started developing uh, electrical measuring equipment that was badly needed. And uh, I love to tell this story about Bill Hewlett. He's been uh, throughout his way he's gone now, but but his wealth was pretty large. Sure. Almost all of it given to Stanford University mm -hmm. anonymously. But I. Uh, at, at Stanford, there's a big shopping center that the university put together that held a, a men's store. And one night I was, I was looking for a new pair of shoes. And it was after I'd graduated from Stanford, but I knew of him. Anyway, Bill Hewlett walks in to the store. There's nobody else there but me and the clerks with his son. His son, I had was a pretty good track and field guy. And so I'd read about him in the newspaper, local newspaper. And uh, 
just to show, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to indicate what kind of guy Bill Hewlett was. Mm-hmm. He sits down and a clerk comes in. I'm, I'm, I'm being served amidst all this by another clerk. And the clerk comes down, fits, and Bill says, my son needs a pair of shoes. He was going to Harvard. And it was about that time of year. So the uh, sat down, he measured his son, who was a pretty tall lad, lanky guy. And, uh, and he said, uh, what shoes do you want? And he, he named the brand. And the uh, guy went to the back and he comes back and he says, he's got a bunch of boxes, but he doesn't have a box with a brand that Bill Newlett named. And Bill Hewlett says to him, uh, the guy says, well, these all sides are about the same wingtip shoe, you know, that you're, you're asking for from, let's say it was Bostonian, I don't know. Remember. Sure. And Bill stands up, he says, tell me, are, are, they, uh, are they on sale like the Bostonian? And the guy says, no. He says to his son, uh, Bill or whatever his name was, we'll go elsewhere. <laughs> he came, here's, here's a man who can buy the whole damn. Like a billionaire and he's, he's going to save a couple of bucks on some shoes. He, he's going to save a couple of bucks. But he was teaching his son something, I suppose. But, but I admired the man. He and his family, along with the Packards, philanthropists, the ordinary, they were. But that's what you run across sometimes. Anyway, I had met both of them, uh, Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard in their offices mm-hmm. on Sand Hill Road, which is famous as a venture capital plot. Uh, right. But um, anyway, I, 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 I wrote my thesis about that. So this is interesting because I didn't realize that you actually started out as a qualitative researcher doing yes, basically interviews. Well, I did that because I was an engineer. Okay. Show me the, show me the evidence. What are the facts? What's the truth? Mm-hmm. What you got to support you. And that was what, when, when I read all this stuff in management, a lot of it was what I called opinionated journalism. Mm-hmm. It's all it was. I, I took a course from a man called R.C. Davis at Ohio, Ohio State. He had wrote a book on uh, the top manager, and I still have a copy of it somewhere around here. And only, only one that ever gave me less than an A in that MBA program, <laughs> I guess. But but I really admired the book. Mm-hmm. And uh and he's one of those teachers that t- would come into the class, open his book, turn to a page, and expect you to have read it, and then he talk about it. You know, he he, he can get away from his book, but he he was a he was a fellow of the academy and so on, well known. But uh, th- th- those were the kinds of some of the influences I was dealing with, and I, so I wrote my thesis and defended it. I finished it, by the way, just as an incident. I was I was in in Rome for six weeks working with TWA people, uh, and I, I wrote the last 
bits and pieces of it and uh and then defended it when i got back to palo alto so how did you wind up at purdue well i went to work for a stanford research institute mm-hmm. once i got my phd in 1963 and uh, frank bass comes back into the picture uh-huh. he's, he's now at purdue and he had wanted he had been trying to hire me and I said, Frank, I don't want to be an academic. And, and I said, I'm talking about uh, consulting. I said, I'm doing some now. I said, I'm in the hotbed of stuff going on <laughs> here. Uh, and uh, uh, I, think, I, think I, I think I can make this work. And he said, oh, gosh. Well, some time passes. And I get another call from Frank. Frank says, Danny said, I, I'm wondering if you, uh, you listen to me. He said, I, I want to teach a course uh, and in England. And I, I want to take my uh, sabbatical. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'd like you to come and He didn't put it this way. He, he was essentially saying to be me mm-hmm. for a year. So I did. I did it only because my wife, who has a, a tremendous role in my life, in my professional life. Right. Um, her mother had had a heart attack and a sp- stroke. And she lived in Lake County, which is known as the region here in Indiana, mm-hmm. which is where the steel mills and the, the oil refineries are. And uh so on anyway uh he, he i said i talked to mary lou about it uh, my wife's name is mary lou to you youngsters the old folks would probably know her i know remember her well yeah and uh so uh, anyway um we did this for what was to be one year just one year and i took a leave from SRI and where I had some good things going and uh, in any event if I'd have stayed in Palo Alto uh, I, you, I I couldn't have helped but doing well I mean given sure. all things that happened there but I didn't anyway one year turned into 45 years and that's a, there's a great backstory as all that happened uh, it dealt with our founding Dean Emmanuel Weiler, uh, who was, uh, in my opinion, quite a, quite a good Dean. Anyway, um, I, I came there for a year and I did sort of what Frank would have done. I lived in his house and I stayed in his office and so on, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, along the way, uh, th- it had to do with with the with the with Craner Herman Craner who was a benefactor of the school it's named after him right and I, I'm not going to go into it at all but it kept me there and and then I ended up looking around at academe and I had some job offers that uh, you know you you sometimes have regrets over 
I had a nice job offer from Wharton and uh, uh, be the head of the department at Texas A&M and some other things. And I, I turned them all down uh, to stay. And I, I was teaching marketing and I got, I got, I received tenure in marketing, by the way, mm -hmm. but I decided, and here's, here's the key. Here's punchline you're waiting for. In 1969, um, uh, the school had chosen to revamp its doctoral program. Mm -hmm. And I, in talking with Frank, I said, you know, you know, my love is to, to convert policy to, to strategic management. And he said, well, why don't you write a, so I did, I had a two page thing. I, I proposed that we have a specialty in strategic management. No, I, I knew I had Frank in my pocket mm -hmm. and he was an eminently powerful guy here. Right. And so, so, okay, we ended up with it. Careful what you ask for. <laughs> and, uh, so any, anyway, I, uh, uh, our first student was Ken Hatton. He came to us from Australia where he had been interested in city planning and things like that. And uh, well, Ken has had his own career, but he, uh, I, I talked him into doing the research in the, in the, the beer industry, the brewing. Yeah, why the, why the beer industry? What, how, how did that come about? Well, as you said yourself, uh, I wanted to do something that was empirical, that had right. evidence. And if you think about industries, uh, uh, Rich, you, you you look at industries that keep that have a chance at some decent data. Mm -hmm. Well, if you tax the damn thing like like they do, there's a lot of data. Right. And we found a lot of data to work with. And, uh, and, and we wrote a paper or two, couldn't get them put it, published. It was frustrating as hell, but. Um, what, were, what were the barriers you were running up against in getting them published? Well, first of all, there was not enough journals. Hmm. We tried at the, the University of Chicago uh, we, because it was an empirical piece uh, was used to that kind of thing. And they turned it down because we were, we used return on asset as a dependent variable instead of market prices mm. to, to say how the companies were doing. And that was the ostensible reason they turned it down. Okay. Uh, the Academy of Management Journal couldn't understand it. Um, they, they had no, no, no review process that would know what to do with it. And although ironically, a piece did get published under Larry Cummings later in the decade. Those brewing studies all have late, late 70s dates when they should have early 70 dates. On them. Yes, I noticed the data set goes up to 1971. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's where we, we did the work. 
Yeah. And uh, so anyway, uh, that did what it was. And anyway, Ken and I, uh, I started looking around and I saw in the Academy of Management, which I had joined in 1967, uh, and understood the value of a, uh, an infrastructure like the American Marketing Association. They had journals, they had, uh, it was, it was a, it was a uh, infrastructure that was badly needed if, if strategy was going anywhere. Right. That's what I believe. So along comes the opportunity to do something about it. It, it, it came in the, in the um, form of the academy dividing itself up into professional divisions of which one was business policy. And so to get them started, the, um, the president at the time, whose name was Charlie Summers, um, was at Columbia University and then hence Washington University or University of Washington. And he was the president. Anyway, he appointed Bill Guth. Uh, it's a name that if you've been around strategies as long as I have, you have to know. Great guy. Great guy. He was great. at NYU, I think. Is that right? He was at NYU, but he, he was failed. He was a a, a junior member of the learned book that had Ken Andrews involved. Ah. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ken's original work was uh, journalistic in my view. Mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 he later wrote it as though he had read all of Porter's work. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was not true. You, you, you really have to know the timing of all this. Right. We had used this textbook and Bill was part of it. Anyway, they pointed him to, along with a man by the name of Ackerman, who was a Harvard uh, faculty member, uh, to put some uh, life into business policy. And Bill and Bob started off by saying at the upcoming academy meeting, which was going to be held in Atlanta, mm -hmm. uh, your old home, and uh, I went down there and say, I'm going to attend that because I had said to Frank and Mike Pesmer and other guys in marketing, I said, I want to switch out of this and I want to just do nothing but strategy work. So I went. 35 people were there. I took copious notes mm. and I, I came home, wrote them up. I mean, they, they were really good, if I do say so myself. And I sent him to Bill. I, I hadn't known Bill before this. And Bill wrote back and said, geez, anybody this interested in this? <laughs> I better get him involved. Thanks so, for volunteering, Dan. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you, when you volunteer, sometimes it has good outcomes. Anyway, he invited me to work with him and and. The next meeting of the Academy, by the way, the Atlanta meeting was held at a major motel. The big hotels weren't there at the time. And there were 450 attendees. That's all. Wow. And it's a bigger thing, bigger deal than that now. <laughs> way bigger. Way bigger. Anyway, uh, uh, 
Bill, Bill wanted to put together a little program for the next meeting of the academy. So the, the division was doing something and it was held in Minneapolis. I have a, a copy of the proceedings. I mean, all the proceedings are, were contained in a little book. Mm -hmm. I still have a copy of it. In it was the paper that Ken and I put together uh, called Strategic Management, a new view, a new view of business right. policy. And it was roundly criticized by the commentator that was highlighted that Bill invited to comment on it. Thought I was nuts. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a professor from Indiana and I, I knew him. I, I said, I'm, I disagree and you're going to see. Anyway, we did that paper and there were five other papers. So the next year, Bill, I uh, accused him of just getting out of work, said to me, you put the program together. So I did. I put together 13 papers and we invited them and I, I spiral bound them, took a bunch of copies with me, wow. gave them out to the attendees. And then I got roundly criticized by the board of directors. You can't do that. You can't publish. You can't do this. And well, of course, the divisions were being moved along by various groups. Mm -hmm. were, uh, and we were moving this one along. And, uh, I, and, and so Bill invited me to go with him to a board meeting that had to do with just the subject professional division. Mm -hmm. And the, the board made it clear that the divisions would not publish something. And what about a budget? Well, no, you're going to get a, a few dollars if people selected you as a division that they want to be a member of. Mm -hmm. So make a long story a little shorter. He, I remember Bill and I leaving at midnight because the next meeting was in Boston. And I can remember us leaving. And I said to Bill, these words, I said, Bill, I had hoped that we would have a home for this in the Academy. But I said, we, we aren't going to be able to publish anything. We aren't going to have any money and so on. And I said, we're going to have to go get our own journal in our own society. I said that in 19, would have been 73, I guess, something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, further to the division, we I continue to work on it and wrote its first uh, uh, constitution. Mm -hmm. And we had a formal election then. Uh, and uh, I ended up I ended up being the first elected, not appointed, first elected chairman. Mm. Uh, that's what my volunteering led me to. <laughs> and, and then we, I think we had started uh, as, as the thing wore on, started with maybe 269 people. That's what sticks in my mind. Mm -hmm. Well, it's today 5,000. Yes. Yeah. And uh, an academy itself is like, 29,000 or something like yeah, that. Something, something around there, yeah. A tremendously uh, uh, 
wealthy society, by the way. Mm-hmm. If you ever heard of something called 990 forms, go find one on the Academy of Management, you'll see. Um, so anyway, the, the, the decade wears on and I, along with Hofer, put together what was known as the Pittsburgh Conference. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, uh, there's a couple of books up here that we produced. And it was based on a Delphi study of people who were interested in the field uh, and trying to say what were the topics, what, 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 what breaks it down, what is it all about. But I was firmly entrenched in the idea that it had to be empirical. You know, you're going you're to provide evidence. You're going to try to use scientific method. Philosophy of science is important to you. Read the, right. read the literature. Right. Anyway, um, that, that uh, was done about 75. And then in 79 came the book, uh, which is, if you get a chance to buy a copy of it, on the used book or do it because it's worth a lot of money. Hmm. This, this according to Catherine Maritan, who, who is uh, also a Purdue student. Right. And who's involved in the Strategy Research Foundation. So, uh, another thing I had something to do with. Right. Anyway, uh, I'm going to skip now to the journal. I, it was about this time of year. I get a call in 1978 from a man by the name of Jeremy Cameron, who was an editor and publisher working with John Wiley and Sons out of Chichester, England. Mm -hmm. He called me up and he said he was was, uh, trying to build a journal in this field that I was working in. And he said, I need to find an editor. And I said, I, he said, Igor Ansoff uh, recommends you. And he said, could I come and see you? I said, well, sure. You want to try. Because that was part of your plan anyway, right? Yeah, it's part of my plan. I said, sure. So he came. And uh, my wife was good enough to serve dinner to him. And we had a couple of days talk. And I said to him, well, he said, are you willing to do it? I said, you know, I, I, I start with a, with a real doubt in my mind that there's enough work being done to fill a quarterly journal, which is what he was proposing. Mm-hmm. This was in 1978. Right. Okay. So I, I was on my way to South Africa where I was doing some work because I had worked on the BO, you know what this is, the BOP program. Mm-hmm. I'd run it for a year. And uh, Frank Frank also was instrumental in getting me invited down there to do that. Quite an interesting thing. But I, I, it, it coincided with going through London on, of all dates, July 4th, 1978. So we met at the Cambridge and Oxford Club. There is such a thing mm-hmm. on Pall Mall in London. And at that meeting, I agreed to 
become the editor. And uh, I'll, I'll leave the rest of the detail on it. I said, now no, it's up to me now to get the manuscripts, to get them reviewed and to set the tone we wanted. And I did all that. And, and the publishing date was 1980, which we met. And uh, I'm not sure the papers are very good, but, but they were the best that was around. Exactly. And that's sort of something I learned as an editor. You're not going to publish, publish anything that's miraculous. <laughs> You're going to publish what, what's around. Yeah. Wanting to be published. So anyway, we did that. And, uh, and they say the rest is history. I, I remained the editor for 28 years. And I, I never would have done this without Mary Lou. Yeah, I was going to say Mary Lou is such an important support oh, yeah. in all this. No, I, I, I can't, I can't give her enough credit. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, I've always, I said this about it though. Says you're getting a hell of a lot done if you sleep with your secretary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you you work you work seven days a week at midnight doesn't matter. <laughs> you know. Well, I remember many a phone call to Mary Lou asking, you know, what, uh, how much longer can I expect the reviews to take? And, you know, when will those reviews come in? She, you know, she definitely, she handled everything. I mean, the, in terms of the, uh, you know, the administrative work, which was huge. The, the reason she handled everything is you guys would never talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can she 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 made a, a humorous joke of it. She says, "You know, if they call and they get you." <laughs> they I was gonna say, I just call the phone number. I don't know who's gonna answer, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you don't want because they figured I'd say no, <laughs> which is what editors do. That's by the way, right. all editors ever do is say no. Yeah. Yeah. They, for for the times you get to say yes. Anyway, anyway, and this was this was definitely not easy in the days of of you know paper processing of manuscripts, right? Everybody, you know, the yeah. young folks on the call here think of submitting a manuscript in terms of uploading a PDF document into a website. Yeah, I remember making four photocopies and stuffing them into an envelope with a return self-addressed stamped envelope for the reviews, and uh, that was the way it was done. Yeah, it left it left me with massive amounts of paper. I bet. <laughs> well, Rich, I'm also thinking about the punch cards that Dan and Ken must have had to, and Arnie Cooper must have had to do to run all the methods on the beer studies or the, the longhand math they probably did on all that to do those regressions and things. Well, so anyway, that was the journal. So it was underway and God bless Mary Lou. But it, it didn't end there. Um Along the way, I I met a man by the name of Derek Chan, as I had Igor Ansoff and got to know them. That's one thing that being a journal editor helps. You get to meet a lot of people, some of whom you don't want to meet, but uh, but uh, any event, um, we're working along, and I get a call from from uh, Derek, who uh, he and I had attended a few of the odds and ends conferences and uh, that were uh, offered over that time. 
And he says, Dad, he says, I have access to a couple of days of some manager's club, and I've forgotten now the title of that's that's uh, right in the heart of the West End mm-hmm. for two days, he says, and we've talked about inviting some people and seeing what we get. And so he said, are you willing to do that? I said, I, yes, I am. And so we put together uh, ideas about the conference and, and who we'd invite to speak and so on. And then we put together a list of, well, who are we going to invite to come and be attended? We, we got a list of 100 people and we invited them and said, this is a program. Didn't charge anybody anything, just this is a program. And that was the first SMS? In 1981. Mm-hmm. And we put the thing together and 150 people show up. Mm. And I always like to, Derek and I kidded around because later, I get a later call from him. He says, say, Danny, he said, I have an opportunity that we could hold a, a social gathering at the, the, the uh, House of Lords. Wow. He said, do you oh, think, wow. I said, I said, Derek, do, do I think that would be good? I, I would say it's better than good. <laughs> boy, oh boy, whose brother-in-law do you have to be to get that? I don't know, but so we we we, we got that, and then then the word gets around, and a lot of English people start crashing our party. Anyway, so it was, it was a big success, enough so Henry Mintzberg says, "I'll do it next year in Montreal." Said great, so he did. And, and we got Sid Schaffler involved from the PIMS operations, if you remember those. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of data there, in there? There is a ton of data. And, and, and then, uh, and Mike Porter had just published his books. And so we got them on the program and did some other things. It was a big success. And we, I set it up so that if you, if you, if you, became a member and you joined there, you would be a founding member of the society. There are very few of those left. Mm. Uh, I'm one, but uh, in any event, uh, it, that's, that put us on a map and it gave us a architecture for the society, which got incorporated in the state of Indiana. I had to do all that and, oh God. And man, did we ever take chances. We had no money. We'd signed a contract with the hotels, you know, stuff like that. We learned the hard way, but we 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 didn't go bankrupt. By the way, I still I still occasionally get a stray piece of mail addressed to SMS that winds its way into my mailbox here. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because of, because of course you know it was it was yeah. the, this was the address uh, well, for many many years was was actually my office number. Well, you know the. It's it's a shame that, um, you know, it, we we staffed everything to help Mary Lou, uh, after several years, and and Wiley was was really a great boss to have, and they still own the property, 
but the society still benefits from it, from a, a negotiation I made in when I left the position. Anyway, um, what it's in its 42nd year now, mm -hmm. 42nd volume. Um, there's now strategy science, there's now the strategic management review, uh, obviously SMJ, and AMJ has finally opened its doors to the subject. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's, so I, I would say, I, I would take some credit for the, um, the, the, the kind of the nuts, bolts and nuts of the building of that, that society. And, uh, and to, in any case, I, I assumed the presidency and then Derek did. And then as these things do, eventually it, it, uh, the board was, was turned to an elected board, which was a mistake uh, in my opinion. You need to appoint the people on that board mm. uh, to get the right people because the right people won't run. Mm. Um, you know, so any, anyway, uh, I think that hindered its growth <clears throat> and so on. But as they say, the rest is history, uh, right. Rich. And, uh, uh, but I, I had a play both in the academy, what the academy did, and also here, and uh, it was it was a long ride, and it was uh, a lot of work at times. But I can remember Mary Lou when we first started and started collecting money. She said, "Well, we got a hundred uh, hundred uh, checks in the mail today," <laughs> so she'd have to take them to the bank and. Mm -hmm. One and I, but uh, finally got that all under audit and everything. But uh, anyway, that's how we got that far. That's a great and, story. Did, so, so you said you you were you continued to edit the journal for twenty eight years. Yeah. Um, so, uh, from your perspective as an editor, what advice do you have for for junior researchers who are just getting started? as a, from an editor's perspective. What, what, what you mean, like what, uh, you got doctoral students that are graduating? Yeah, so I mean, we have a number of, you know, a lot of doctoral students here on this call and I'm sure many doctoral students and, mm -hmm. and junior faculty members will be watching the video on YouTube. What, you know, what, what from an editor's perspective, what, uh, what advice do you have for them? Uh, well, a, a broad, sort of facetious piece of advice is, when you think that the paper you've written is ready for submission, rewrite it. And don't be afraid to do it five times. But, but you, you have, have respected people who've been through this, take a look, mm -hmm. and, and a serious look. Right. Because your, your organization probably won't be very good you probably won't know how to handle the citations. You need, one of the things that I always did is look at, a, at, a, at an abstract or a start 
of a paper, you can tell an awful lot about what the, how good that paper is going to be by how it starts. Mm-hmm. Because if it isn't well organized, nothing else is going to be. Um, that doesn't mean you don't submit it to the review process, but but the first decision a, a, a editor has is to, if you're working with a double blind process, which we were committed to, is to pick the referees. And, and what you have to recognize you're going up against is, is sort of like, if I can borrow it from the legal proceedings, the editor is a judge at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And the advice he gets in legal terms would be a brief. And if you if you pick the right kind of referees and they do their job, that brief will be extremely important to you mm-hmm. because it will point you to things just because the person you pick usually is kind of have some expertise in what you, that's why you picked them or her. And, and you, you pay attention to what you're, what you're reading. And, and you, your next decision is, are you ready to accept this paper? Are you ready to reject it? Or are you more, which is the most likely if it gets through this with any positivity at all, is what needs to be changed? Can you point it out? Or you don't need to be redundant if the referees are pointing it out. Just point out that the referees are telling you what you need to do. Right. You know, you know honor the referees. Uh, I don't understand something that I see now. When I look at the, at the editorial board of the SMJ, you can get to 250 people. Yeah. Come on. We got 250 experts. I don't think so. But the, but the reason we got a lot of, we've got a lot of, uh, this is, I'm going off track here. Reason we got a lot of papers and the, the current editors tend to say, gee, we got 15,000 papers. You know, I said, Jesus Christ, is that a lot of work? <laughs> <laughs> that you put onto yourself. You know, uh, you, you've got to be tough enough that people know that they can't just let you rewrite their paper. Because mm-hmm. I refuse to do that. Right. Say, why, why should I give away the time it will take? Or maybe I'm not even capable, but I don't know. But, right. you know, you, 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 but people like to think they'd like to be a journal editor. Be careful what you wish for, mm-hmm. because um, it's it's hard work, um, and it's thankless work. And ninety percent of the time, you're saying no. Well, that that's right. Ninety percent of the time, you're saying no or more, and and you're, you're the people that you say no to all believe they should have said yes. Right. And the few people that you said yes to don't thank you because it well absolutely that's what that's what this deserves. It was obvious it should have been it's obvious to anybody. <laughs> you know, so nobody ever thanks you. 
uh, worse still was what I what I've enjoyed. Kind of ironic, I think. I, I've been an editor for 28 years, and of course, I I eased uh, uh, Will Mitchell, who's really great at this job, because he will take the time to right. help me rewrite a paper. Uh, Ed Zajac and and uh, and uh, uh, gosh, my man down at uh, Rich Bettis, yeah, Rich Bettis, Rich Bettis, yeah, and. Uh, Hell, I've gone fishing with Rich Bettis. I know Rich Bettis, damn it. <laughs> but uh, any, anyway, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think my, I have a daughter who's working in, uh, of all things, the uh, virus area in hmm. Diego, um, in 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 Scripps Institute, uh, and. She, as a sideline, had taken up the, the uh, offering to rewrite scientific papers. Mm -hmm. She has a PhD from Purdue and uh, in biology, in uh, microbiology and all that, all that latest, greatest stuff. And she, she's made a kind of a side uh, line of rewriting papers. Mm. And uh, she, <laughs> we have an often have a lot of conversations about what constitutes a good paper and what do you look out for. I, I I get very wary. For example, if you read the first paragraph, and they're citing the work that they that the work is based on or related to, and, and they get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you got that wrong. I mean, you don't know whose shoulders you're standing on or standing with. You're making a huge mistake. Uh, you're going to make other mistakes, and they do. If you're reading it, so you 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 need you need to have the skill that Joe has, you know, and 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 I'm sure shows in all the papers he does. But uh, but organization of the paper and so it's readable and so on is hard to do and I would urge you if you're if you're new to it get some experience person you may have to pay for it even uh, particularly if your language language is not uh, native language is not English sorry it's it, you're, you're that's the language you're going to have to deal with, and um, find find somebody that can help you with that. So, um, I, we've gone a little bit longer than I was anticipating. I apologize for that, but um, I, I've enjoyed the conversation so much I didn't want to cut it off. But I want to try to squeeze in one last question, okay. if I might, which is you know from from Ken Hatton on down. Uh, you know, obviously you've mentored many, many doctoral students through the Purdue PhD program, uh, probably dozens. I know we've had, I don't know, I think, I think I've seen the list. It's probably like 70 alumni of the program. Mm -hmm. What's, what's the most important piece of advice that you have given to your doctoral students over the years? What's the most important piece of advice? You know, the, the, the students vary so much. Mm. 
that it's hard to, to, to say there's something general. I, I think, uh, I, I, I guess I say to them, whatever you do, don't do anything that will harm your integrity. Mm -hmm. People's perception of it. Be a scholar, be a good scholar, do your homework. Uh, if you can't do that, you're not going to be, have any respect at all. And there's stuff going on that you just makes you wonder. Um, you, 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 of course, you, you, you develop pets as you go along. I mean, there's some students are better than others. Mm. You know that, Rich. Mm. You, you don't tell them that, but you, <laughs> you, you know, you know that's true. And some are going to do better than others. And uh, but I, I always tried as a, as a as a in my advice, I tried not to spend my time writing papers with these people. They need to be on their own. Mm. And uh, but I, but I I think I, I've seen I've seen plagiarism, mm. very very well re regarded people. Mm. You, you'd be surprised what you will see if you uh, go along. It's it, but I I think the worst thing you can do is to do anything that would harm people's respect for you. If, if you were going to be an academic. Yep. Excellent mm -hmm. advice. Excellent. Well, great. Well, let's all uh, thank Dan for uh, being our special celebrity guest on the talk show today. Well, thank you. Uh, gosh, uh, did we really take an hour and 20 minutes? Okay. Probably, but uh, who's counting? Oh, who's counting? <laughs>